come from the punk scene. I was going to shows in Portland uh, starting when I was 13 years old, which would have been 1988. Um, and it was quite hellish. Uh, you had, I mean, the first show I went to, I think there were more Nazi skinheads there than, than punks. Um, and they were brutal, and they were violent, and they... I mean, I talk about taking care of your body. Every time I talk about this, I actually have, like, yeah. this tense emotional response. You are listening to... Meditations. Mid-Valley. Mutations. Citations. Mutations. Jungle Room. Hey, let's do this. People in other parts of the country are doing this. We can do it. Part of the WFMU family of products. Mutations. It's Mid-Valley Mutations. So, that's a little hot. Let's turn that down. Uh, Well, it's Mid-Valley Mutations. And uh, I wanted to say a quick hello here before we get into the bulk of things. Uh, And a a very big thank you to uh, Post Consumer uh, in the Wiggle Room last hour who uh, delivered a fantastic show. And I really hope you were listening. It was... uh, I, I haven't heard a lot of radio like that before, and uh, um, that is one of the things I like about uh, not just Sheena's Jungle Room, but WFMU in general, is that uh, even when you get to know a DJ and you think you know the kind of show that they're going to deliver, you get someone like Post Consumer who comes in with something completely unexpected and completely beautiful, and... Uh, for that, I thank you. So, yeah, uh, way to set me up. That was fantastic. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, th- that, uh, thank you. I wanted to say a quick uh, hello uh, to some people who are uh, hanging out in the chat. Uh, before we get started, uh, we've got Imaginos and Chris O, the Ramen City Kid, Arvo Zylo, a post-consumer himself. Hello, how's it going? Thank you, thank you. Uh, WR and cat in the chat uh and uh, uh apparently uh cat really enjoyed uh, the show last week so thank you that, I, I appreciate that uh sometimes uh y- you get them right every once in a while uh well uh, you know i don't want to say too much because there's actually a bit of an introduction coming your way here in a moment but uh, thank you so much for tuning in uh thank you for uh, uh joining me on this uh, journey tonight because uh i found this conversation extremely powerful and very important and I was very, very uh, glad that I was able to work with Aaron uh, to uh, bring this uh, to you today. So uh, let's get into the first part of it. Uh, we'll take a break at the halfway point, and I'll say a few other things, and then uh, we'll go to the uh, the second half. Uh, so uh, this is It Did Happen Here, a panel conversation uh, that I think everyone will want to hear. And welcome to Mid-Valley Mutations, where I have a very special guest co-hosting with me uh, this evening uh, for a very interesting show that's a little different than normal. Uh, but let me introduce uh, Obadiah Baird, no stranger to the show. How you doing? 
Uh, doing good. It's uh, it's good to be back. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat> now, I wanted to have you on for this one in particular because we were both at this event, and I wanted to uh, re-air this conversation that's coming up soon. Uh, and since <clears throat> you actually had a bit of a role in putting this on, I thought it'd be kind of nice to have you as uh, part of this conversation. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, we are going to be airing uh, a, a panel discussion uh, by the people who did the podcast It Did Happen Here, uh, which is a podcast about the anti-fascist efforts and movements that began in the 80s to help make Oregon and the DIY scene in Oregon a much more enjoyable place to be. Uh, and uh, when I heard this panel discussion and uh, was at this event, I was just so moved because this really felt like something that, you know, my life immediately had improved because of the work they did. Uh, and it just felt like an immediate thing that uh, I wanted to share with the world. Uh, what, what was uh, the Bookman's role in putting this together? Um, we really provided the space. Um, there was a two-day anti-capitalist uh, book fair that was going on in Corvallis where we have our bookstore and um, we've partnered um, with some folks down there to help host events in the past and they approached us about hosting a couple of events in conjunction with that uh, series series of events that were going on throughout the weekend uh, in a number of locations in Corvallis mm. and, um, right because there was like other uh speeches and uh, panel discussions at other locations. Yeah, workshops. Um, yeah, uh, I unfortunately wasn't able to participate in much of it because I was working all weekend, but uh, <laughs> I was I was happy to uh, to provide a space for a couple of events that they had going on, of which this was one of them. Right. And, and so this was a conversation that happened on the 21st of January, 2024, just so we're clear. Mm -hmm. um, the last day of the three-day event. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, <clears throat> this is the kind of thing that the book then does other kinds of events and whatnot with uh, authors and whatnot. And they certainly had a book that they put together, the It Did Happen Here podcast, mm -hmm. which has won awards and whatnot. They were given a book deal to kind of write about their experiences as well. Um, so there was a book tie-in, uh, but I think this is something that probably would have uh, been important to both of us, even if there hadn't been a bookstore connection to it. Yeah, I mean, one one of the the sort of privileges of owning a bookstore, I think, is that it provides me space to support things that I'm passionate about, mm -hmm. and this event was an example of that. Yeah. <clears throat> so I just wanted to mention a couple things about the people who you will be hearing, and then we'll let them just uh, do their piece. Uh, <clears throat> the conversation is moderated by Aaron Yankee, uh, who was the executive producer of It Did Happen Here, who is a documentarian and a radio producer uh, in their regular life. Uh, and then uh, we also had uh, Mo, Mo Bostern, who was the writer of the Extra Tough zine about... Uh, uh, the fishing lifestyle of people who worked on fishing boats and, and whatnot. Um, oh, interesting. Uh, and is also part of the B3 newsroom of uh, producers and whatnot. Uh, Jonathan Mozochi? Mozaki? I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce his last name, and I do apologize, Jonathan, uh, who is the researcher and organizer for the Coalition for Human Dignity, 
which tries to track right-wing activity and keep an eye on what they are up to. Uh, and then uh, last week we had uh, Pete Normal, a musician and activist uh, who was actually from Corvallis and grew up in the Corvallis scene and uh, was in the bands Lazy Boy and Resist. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if he had other music beyond those two, but I think, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I was a big Resist fan growing up, so I think uh, that alone, I mean, there's some really amazing songs and, and work in there. So Yeah, I think I must have just <clears throat> missed those bands. They must have been just slightly ahead of my time growing up down there. Yeah, I think maybe Resist was done by 94? Yeah, see, and I got interest in punk rock in 95 so yeah i mean they, they weren't around for very long but i, re I recall like i mean uh, just because they were from the area they were on like all the punk local radio shows and things like that yeah. so, uh, anyway let's let them uh, do their thing and then uh, we'll be back uh, in a little while uh, it, um it's mid valley mutations and uh, uh we're uh, talking about it did happen here mid valley a panel discussion from some of the creators of the book and podcast mutations about anti-fascist action and organizing in the pacific northwest uh, my name's Erin yankee i was the executive producer of the podcast and a member of the dream team of the co-writing of the book so i'm going to moderate and ask the questions so we're going to start each of us are going to read a little bit out of the book Mo moderated a panel when we were at Pals and kept talking about how we are in a bookstore. Books are resources. Let's read from a book. So I am sharing that idea with her in the spirit <laughs> of collective brain power. And uh, we will start with Pete Normal. Who do you want to introduce yourself, or do you want me to? Uh, I will. I'll introduce myself. Great. Sure. Nice. Hello. It's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Pete. I was involved in Port Portland area. I was a founding member. Uh, it started in early 1990. Um, and yeah, I think I was the second youngest member. I was a very young teenager at the time, uh, 15, I guess. And um, so I'm going to read uh, an excerpt from a good friend of mine. His name is Joran. Uh, he was also a founding member. He was one of the kind of core organizers in Portland ARA. Hi. Oh, sorry, it's anti-racist action. Um, thank you. So yeah, that's Joran. We're, we're still very close. And uh, so I'm going to read something that he said. There were a lot of different people that were organizing at different times. So I don't even really have a clear recollection of who said, hey, let's do this. People in other parts of the country are doing this. We can do it. The first meeting, uh, sorry, the first meeting Portland ARA ever had was at Karen's house on Belmont. A bunch of people showed up, some of whom became integral to organizing and some who may not have been involved at all in the long term. Someone presented information about the organizing that was happening in Minneapolis and Chicago and Europe to some extent. I think it might have been Karen who had a lot to do with uh, connecting the dots between what was happening in other places and what was happening in Portland. I think she proposed that we do something there. For many of us, the idea was initially just about the bullying that was happening at the shows. And let's take our scene back. There's more of us than them. And the reason, um, the reason they've been walking all over us is because we haven't stuck together. We haven't done anything when this happened. Less about Mulageta Sarah, um, was right here uh, and 
if you don't know about him, you'll probably learn about him. Uh, but definitely influenced by his murder. Another big impetus for our organizing was the Coalition for Human Dignity's Rock Against Racism show that, that they put together at the Pine Street Theater. I remember talking to Jonathan Mozaki. Did I say that right? Mozaki? Yeah, no. Mozaki. You can say it however you want. That's him. That's Jonathan. Everyone usually is. And Scott Nakagawa a lot. Um, they were older than me and more experienced. They were definitely folks that I looked up to. I think the Coalition for Human Dignity was an organization of people that we looked to a lot for how do we make this a viable political movement rather than just gang fighting. We wanted to be a political movement and one of the ways that the Portland police certainly tried to work against us was painting us as nothing but a gang. Certainly that was not what we wanted to be. I think I'll leave it there. Mo? All right. This is Mo. Thank you, Pete. And Pete came up from Eugene to be with us today. So thanks, Pete. And uh, my name is Mo Bowstern. At the time of these uh, incidents that are described in this book, I was living in Chicago and organizing with people out of the Autonomous Zone, uh, 1726 West Division, and uh, worked alongside Sprite, who was organizing with ARA at the time. So I was adjacent to a lot of the things. I'm gonna read something from Chicago, and we have a pretty white panel tonight, so I thought I would read something from uh, Marty, who was uh, in a group called Skinheads of Chicago, which is a multiracial skinhead gang. Marty was a black activist. COVID and the George Floyd murder has basically shown us what we've always known. You take a population of Americans, you render them to the bottom, you give them shitty health care, you get them crowded living conditions. You give them a poor quality of life, minimum wage, poor access to health care, for access to nutrition, and then when a COVID-19 virus comes through the community, of course, it's gonna hit the most vulnerable people first. I mean, we've always been the most vulnerable people in America. We've always known this, though. Liberal white America is like, oh my God, how can this happen? This has always been how America has treated us. You look at this country, at the data about how black life has been constructed and built. You'll see that the average black family is worth about $1,700. White fools got $117,000 average median wealth. There's a disconnect. I think skinheads promoted this idea of a united, harmonious, working class unity between black and white, which looks good on the face of it, right? It looks good. It makes people feel good. But I think a lot of it works to hide and mask the reality of how black life has built this country. Skinheads don't want to go there for a number of reasons. It tears off that sort of happy mask that skinhead culture and punk rock culture creates for itself. It shows that despite all its sloganeering about having a united working class, a united front against racism, that black life is still at the bottom in this country. We need specific policies, specific ideas that reference that, which means tapping into whiteness. You've got a lot of white folks coming out and making these kinds of grand sorts of statements symbolic gestures, whatever it is, to show that they are against police misconduct, but that's not what we need. I don't need white tears. I don't need liberal whites telling me how much they hate racism. I need them to denounce whiteness. I need them to denounce the privilege, the accrued advantage, the generational wealth, the, world, the racial wealth gap. If you're gonna be a real asset as a liberal white person, I need you to push for reparations for black people in this country. 
not for immigrants, not for LGBT, not for people of color, for the people, the ancestors who built this joint, you know what I mean? In my mind, whiteness is predicated on anti-blackness. So for every white family that's able to get a home in the suburb, that's one less black family that was able to get a home loan or whatever. The core sort of principles of anti-racist action were education and direct action. In a large sense, a lot of us as Americans, black and white, we all need political education. As we're still stuck in the opulence of the 80s, we're still stuck in this Cosby era sort of mentality of prosperity and projecting ourselves into some middle-class lifestyle. That ba basically ain't based on reality and how we're really living out here. So I think it just goes back to education. A lot of us need political education. Who are you? Who are your ancestors? What did they contribute to the building of this country? I'm not looking to Africa. I'm not looking back to the motherland in terms of redress and reparations, that sort of thing. I'm looking to this country that my ancestors built to defend my citizenship here. We helped build this first world economy and we need to be compensated. That goes back to education, having that solid political foundation, intellectual framework where you can articulate yourself and who you are and the role your ancestors laid in building this bitch, right? So thank you, Marty. And I just want to also say on the note of ancestors, uh, we like to do introduce the ancestral member of the panel, Muligata Sorrell, who was brutally murdered by three racist white skinheads. One of whom was a teenager, one of whom was homecoming king at Grant High School at the time on the night of November 13th in 1988. And after that, people mobilized in Portland. Jonathan Mazaki and Pete were two of those people to help fight against what had become Skinhead City, Skin City in Portland. And I forgot to mention this. Um, I was the principal writer of the book. And also I co-wrote the narration for the podcast. So that's my role in the book and podcast situation. I'm going to hand it over to Jonathan to begin political education. Set me up with that. <laughs> uh, can can y'all hear me? Okay. Okay. Um, I'm Jonathan Mazaki. I was one of the founders of the Coalition for Human Dignity in Portland, which is uh, uh, one of the main groups featured uh, in the uh, podcast and the book. Uh, the section I'm going to read is just from me. It gives a, a little background. Uh, to the formation of the Coalition for Human Dignity and, and my own uh, personal trajectory uh, into anti-racist and anti-fascist uh, organizing. Uh, so I spent 1984 through 1998 living in Portland. I came out of a very left-wing activist background. I was involved in South African anti-apartheid work. Uh, I had traveled to Central America in the mid-1980s and did solidarity work with groups against American imperialism there, against the Contra War in Nicaragua. So my perspective on Portland was colored by my involvement in the left. And the left in Portland for me at that time was the Portland Alliance. It's working around farm workers, solidarity campaigns, anti-racist campaigns, and so on. There was the movement to change the name of Union Avenue to MLK Boulevard, which was very controversial in Portland at that time. Um, you know, all these businesses bemoaning the fact that they had to change their letterhead and whatnot, and really it was just plain old-fashioned racism. Um, in some ways, it, uh, th there was 
Yeah. Uh, my activism in, in the early 1980s began to take a focus on what, at that time, and what I continue to believe today, to be the two pillars of the American form of fascism. Two pillars. Those two pillars are the Christian right and the white nationalist movement. If American fascism is ever to totally take power and move into a regime phase, it will have to go through these two movements. It'll come out of these two broad strands of American political culture and tradition. So that's part of the, what the Coalition for Human Dignity was uh, formed to focus on. And uh, part of uh, what, what we did back then was uh, we, we had a dual um, emphasis. On, on the one hand, we had what we called the research capacity, which was primarily what I was involved in, and that was uh, collecting information without the internet, <laughs> right, uh, on far-right groups, uh, which ranged anywhere from uh, racist skinhead groups, like the folks who murdered Mulugan or Sarah, uh, to what we used to call Christian patriots, which today looks like the MAGA movement on steroids. Uh, and, uh, and then occasionally you'd have academic, professional, credentialed racists, so on and so forth. You know, throughout social, the social class of American society, you, you get organized racists in all occupations. They're not all white working class racists, right? Uh, so my focus was on research. And back then that meant um, uh, collecting, you had to collect files, you had to uh, get newspaper clippings, and quite a bit of this is in the book. It was labor intensive. Um, and at that one point we had up to, I think, 20 filing cabinets worth of stuff. Uh, so that was one aspect. The other was uh, uh, community organizing and self-defense. And there were other folks in the Coalition for Human Dignity who kind of took on that work. Uh, but together, we were able to, uh, you know, fight the uh, neo-Nazis back and uh, make some important, uh, had, had some important small tactical victories, if you will. But strategically, I think, you know, given what's happening, we, we lost the war. Uh, so keep that in mind. I think there's plenty of lessons to be learned from what we did that were correct, perhaps, uh, but you know we we didn't <laughs> we didn't uh, finish off. We, we didn't uh, have a revolution. We didn't solve these problems, and the fact that we didn't solve these problems means we have this today, um, which for me is just stomach churning in so many ways. We can get to that later. Thanks. We'll get to stomach churning later for sure. <laughs> um, I'm going to read a little bit from Scott Nakagawa, who is part of the Coalition for Human Dignity and also ACT UP organizer. In order to be successful in organizing and mobilizing, you have to polarize people. You, so you choose an issue and you polarize people around it. When you choose that issue and when you think about who the interested parties are that you need to mobilize in order to be able to win the day, you need to think really carefully about where you put more polarizing things so you're not polarizing things with too few people and too few assets on your side. The right has been really, really effective at polarizing things in places where they have more bodies than we do. Even if we can defeat something, like we did with Ballot Measure 9, they were still able to build their forces and build their base to be a more powerful force going forward. There's hope, you know, but there's also just being real about what's out there. The struggle has always been there. It doesn't have to be a totally bad deal. It feels a little bit sometimes like you're on a runaway roller coaster. There are ups and downs and twists and turns and you're never quite sure what's going to come next. 
You don't seem to ever be in control. We have a choice in that situation. You can either grab onto the rails and white knuckle it with your eyes closed and hope for the best, waiting for the ride to end, or you can throw your hands up in the air, open your eyes and go, wee, and try to embrace the moment and recognize that it's an opportunity to feel alive, to be a part of what's happening in the world and to do something. Got yeah. Maybe Mo, if you want to talk a little bit about the organ history that created the situation oh, sure. that we find ourselves in at this moment. Yeah. Mo's real good about historical dates. Jonathan, please uh, jump in and correct me. So if you think about when Oregon became a territory, there was this situation where there were 9,000 white people in 1849 in Oregon. 9,000 white people. 10 years later, there were, in, in 1860, so 11 years later, there were 50,000, which is a huge change. And we had a lot of people coming uh, out of the Civil War on the losing side trying to find something to do and a place to be. And people ended up in Oregon and got together and decided to make it a white, Christian, Protestant stronghold. And until 2001, I think, there were laws in the, or there was language in the Oregon Constitution referencing the exclusion specifically of black people in Oregon. It was a sundown state. It wasn't just a sundown town. You wanted to get off over the border after the sun went down in Oregon. And that is an ugly truth about the white origins of this beautiful land that we all share. Um, and then if you, if you actually trace in Portland itself the the way that populations of people were moved around, specifically folks from China, who were not allowed to, like, they were men, they were not allowed to bring women or marry anyone, so they were men condemned to a lifetime of, of being alone and single in a long, in a faraway land. And black people, if you trace those um, populations through the neighborhood, you can see that every generation these groups have been uprooted and moved through Portland. And um, it was a disturb, I mean, it was a thing I knew generally when I started researching this book, but once I actually started learning about it, it was, it was wild to see it so specifically done so regularly. And then having um, an, uh, a mentality at a societal level of like, when people don't have something, it's because they didn't work hard enough for it. Instead of like, if you lose everything every 25 years, it's really hard to build anything up. Or if you're not allowed to own land, which was also a situation that was present initially in Portland. So Portland was operating as a Jim Crow city for a long time. Um, is that the kind of thing you wanted? Okay, so <laughs> let's just like, I just wanna acknowledge that we're gonna talk about like some difficult things and some pain so don't forget to be in your body and take a breath. And um, remember that you're here together with people that 
want to fight with you to make liberation for everyone. I mean, I don't want to assume to know what you guys are all thinking, but that's what I want for all y'all. So, anything else? All right, good. <laughs> I'm not talking. <laughs> this is our first event that we've done with Pete, and Pete spent time in Corvallis in the 90s, but also I think being a very young teenager like you, we're talking about how you met Trulor and Mizaki at the book fair, and I think that's a really important thing of like how that moment of like we have to fight this, and if you would share that story, and yeah. then maybe talk more about like, and then you ended up in Corvallis and what it looked like there. And sure. Um, so I'm gonna make do my best to make two long stories short. And anybody who knows me knows this is not my best skill. Um, so bear with me. Um, so I want, I guess, hmm. So I come from the punk scene. I was going to shows in Portland uh, starting when I was 13 years old, which would have been 1988. Um, and it was quite hellish. Uh, you had, I mean, the first show I went to, I think there were more Nazi skinheads there than than punks, um, and they were brutal and they were violent and they. I mean, I, <laughs> talk about taking care of your body. Every time I talk about this, I actually have like yeah. this tense emotional response. Yeah. I saw people just helpless and not knowing what to do, and seeing this man. I was talking to Jonathan about this earlier. Seeing this guy at the front of the show yell fuck the Nazis and get pulled off by five Nazis into the dark uh, and pummeled and I'm just a little kid being like I don't think I'm going to do this again um, yeah it was not fun but of course I kept going back because that was where I kind of found my people um, so that's so I came to I guess activism through punk rock um, and I came to anti-racist action, uh, well, anti-racist activism through that lens as well. My, I was in a band. Uh, we wrote a song after the murder of Mullah Gattasarab. We wrote a song called An Ode to Ken Death. Uh, Ken Death was one of the people who murdered Mullah Gattasarab, and he seemed to be the instigator of the violence initially. Uh, he was not a cool dude. Uh, we wrote a song about him. At our, at we handed out flyers, uh, lyric sheets at our first show. These made their way to Tom Metzger, who was the head of the White Aryan Resistance, who was the, I guess, most prominent uh, white nationalist group at that time, who were organizing uh, a lot of the Nazi skinhead activity. Um, Anyway, we ended up on Tom Metzger's hotline. He had this call-in hotline to kind of tell his followers what to do, and he told them, contact these people who I'm sure he didn't know were like 14 and 15 years old. Uh, he told his followers to contact them because we were stupid enough to put our address and phone number on this lyric sheet. Um, and so we heard from them. We heard from people from Europe. You know, we... Everything from like you're misunderstanding the situation, let me help you understand it better, to like, you know, go kill yourselves kind of thing. Um, anyway, uh, 
flat, fast forward to Corvallis. We, so we hear from these uh, Texas activists who are monitoring white nationalists and they call us say, hey, just so you know, you're on the Tom Metzger hotline and you're probably gonna need to kind of, you know, watch your backs. Um, so we get the letters, we hear from these people, it's pretty scary and uh, we come to play a show in Corvallis. Now, there was a very active uh, all-ages scene, punk scene in Corvallis in 1989, um, in large part because you couldn't really have that many shows in Portland because the Nazis were ruining the shows and people didn't want to put on shows there because uh, they were having a lot of violence in their establishments. So some folks here who connected with KBVR they started putting on shows at the Peacock. Um, and it was wonderful. The shows were great. People were coming from Eugene, Portland. Um, so my band played our second show. It was my 15th birthday. And we knew that there's a large possibility that these Nazis are going to come find us because uh, you know the word was out. Uh, Anyway, play our set, get off the stage, and I see these people who I'd seen at our first show uh, show up, talk to the door people, and uh, found out probably that we had played already, and so they left. They just turned right around. Um, so at that point, we changed our band name. We were afraid. We, uh, we were children, and we had there was no kind of unity. There was no sense of, uh, we have people backing us up. Um, Fast forward to December of 1989, and there was a show, another show at the Peacock. Uh, one of the band members, uh, this guy Mike Aragon, he was in the band Deprived, he went on to do Defiance. Um, he talked a bunch of shit to a local Nazi who, uh, I, there were a bunch of Nazi skinheads in Corvallis, I guess I just wanted to let you all know. Um, it was, yeah, I mean, they were problematic. They were not as scary as the ones in Portland, but they were not great. Uh, and Mike said some words to this guy. There was violence between them, and Mike got stabbed in the guts. Um, walks up, if anybody's been to the Peacock upstairs, it's a very long stairwell. Walks all the way up, gets on stage while a band is playing, the detonators from Eugene, and uh, he grabs the mic and says, this guy just stabbed me. And he pulls up his shirt, there's guts coming out of his skin. And the entire establishment, this is about 350 teenagers, just immediately ran down the stairs and flooded the streets of Corvallis looking for this Nazi. Um, and that was one of the most inspirational moments of my life. Uh, just watching people just immediately react to something where we saw a member of our community like potentially dying in front of us. Um, you know, we had already been feeling a lot of feelings about the murder of Mulligata Sarah, but when you see that you're all ready to do something and everybody comes together to do that thing, um, you feel like, okay, this is power. We have something here. Uh, a few months later, we start ARA in Portland. Uh, there's a picture in the book of the first meeting, and I mentioned it in what I read. And so um, Corvallis, you know, 
in my experience as an anti-racist activist and in the formation of ARA very much ties into that story. And so, uh, I don't know, is that what you were looking for? That was a lot. When you were talking, well, first of all, thank you so much for taking us all the way back there. When you talked about the instigators of the murder of Muligata, yeah. it's true that Ken Death delivered the killing blow. Okay. But he did not start it, just to be a... Okay. Like, here's what happened. Um, as far as anybody knows, that, uh, and it was Muligata's friends that corroborated this story, um, that Steve Strasser and Kyle Brewster started the fight. Okay. And with Muligata's friends, Muligata came back to try and break up the fight. Ken Death was in the car. Right. With his girlfriend. His girlfriend was egging him Patty Cop, right. who is a multi-generational white supremacist. She had white supremacist family. She was a white supremacist. She looked at Ken, and I just want to say this because everybody is like, he was killed by three white men. But Patty Cop was a white woman who looked at her boyfriend and said, what are you, some kind of pussy? You're not gonna go in, what are you, you gotta go do something. And so to impress his girlfriend and he's drunk, he went and he delivered the killing blow because he was shamed. So there is a role of a white woman in that. I, I just like to, and, and the interesting thing when you start to research it, Patty Cop's name comes up in the first stories that you read about this and after 10 years it disappears. She's still out there. Ken Death died in prison, hepatitis, at 45. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Two questions uh, come up for me uh, when I review what happened in, in Portland so many years ago. And, uh, you know, going from that time, skipping forward to the present, everything that's happened in between, is where are we in this process of... Uh, fascism developing in the United States? And that can be a confusing question, right? And I'm interested to hear what people think. Some folks said fascism was here when Donald Trump won the election in 2016. Um, or if they said, well, it's not full fascism, maybe it's populism, they'll use a bunch of terms. Again, it can be very confusing. The um, Dean of Fascism Studies uh, in, in the United States, whose uh, name escapes me, uh, I'll come back because I'm old, um, famously said after the January 6th, 2021 assault on the Capitol, he famously said, I was wrong, Donald Trump is a fascist. This is after having spent five years saying he's, he wasn't. So the first question is, where are we in this unfolding drama? Uh, are these forces you know, maybe they've had more success of late, but we're not, you know, perhaps in a fully developed fascist regime. And there's some debate debate over that, right? And Biden's not a fascist, or maybe he is. Very confusing, yes? Here's what's clear to me, is that some folks, um, you know, are acting now, and that's what's important. You have a group here that's been here 10 years, Corvallis Antifa, and I pronounce it Antifa, not Antifa. Why? Because I was saying Antifa in 1988 when I was working with German comrades. Yeah. That's how they pronounce it, 
Antifa. I think Fox News started that. So, it's just my opinion. It's Antifa. Why? Because it's anti-fascism. It's not anti. Like what? I could never understand that. I'm with you. Thank you. Same. Antifa, not Antifa. No. But I, I won't jump on you if you continue to pronounce it the other way. It, in any case, you know, those folks in that crew do their research, okay? And they, they uh, take to heart the old anti-racist action um, moniker the, the, that uh, we go where they go. So that's important, and folks can start their own groups. And today, you can do research you know, with your computer, which we, you know, we didn't have that in the 80s. We had to have filing cabinets, copy machines, so on and so forth. A lot of infrastructure and overhead that we don't need. Uh, on the other hand, so do these far right and fascists, right? They have the same thing. So OPSEC, operational security, these things are important. I would encourage folks to, you know, fight this stuff without a doubt. Um, and, you know, join a group, form your own group. We, we need to do it now. Why? Because I think at this point in American history, right now in this political and historical moment, things are unraveling. They're really unraveling. And one aspect I'm going to focus on is, uh, just I'm going to mention this, if at any point, you know, somebody still had some faith in the Democratic Party having a moral center, okay, around which people could mobilize, I think Gaza, that the genocide in Gaza has destroyed that completely, okay? And if that's the case, has just laid that to waste. And those historic coalitions that made the Coalition for Human Dignity so important, I'm not sure those are possible right now, okay? I'm not, which raises the question, you know, what is? What has changed? And I think because of that moral corrosion, okay, that now a really intense form of fascism has become more possible, okay, today than at any point in the past, you know, many, many years. Um, and that should freak you out. It freaks me. There we go, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. And uh, thanks, thanks sorry, for- a little rant. No, I love it, I live for it, Jonathan. Please. Your rants, love it, <laughs> so good. Aaron, did you have another question? <laughs> One of the things, like, like Pete, I have, you know, came from the punk scene that had a, had a Nazi problem. <laughs> and we learned how to fight it and together, but finding your community through subculture and then being able to feel less alone and for the, the people who don't have a subculture who could come to it through politics, which is not my experience, so I don't know, but I feel like people could join a coalition, join a group, join something. So if those kind of coalitions are not possible, how do we come together to fucking fight this bullshit because we can't do it on our own? That's sort of the first thing that I would like to ask. Also, one of the things with our style of this is that we are just regular old people that do not have the answers. We are here in this group. You all know so much from your own lived experiences. You live here. 
so you know what's actually happening here. I've been here for five hours. You know, if you don't come to this from a subculture, how are you all coming together at this point? Because we're not here to be like, here's our five-point program to solve fascism by our book. It's <laughs> not what we're about. So, anyway. I just want to also say that 30 years ago, the proportion that you had to work to pay for rent was a lot different. Yeah. And so if you, like, I don't, I don't want anyone to feel like, oh, we're not doing enough, those people did. It's like, I, we had to work two days a month to pay rent. <laughs> I am not kidding. And we, eighty dollar rent. My rent was eighty dollars. <laughs> when I <laughs> at the turn of this century, I paid four hundred sixty bucks a month, which covered my bills. It covered toilet paper and dish soap. It covered cat food. It covered my rent, and it covered an outside office that I was renting. <laughs> so yeah, we had a lot of time to build community. And that is one of the ways that this, why this is the anti-capitalist book fair. Like, just to recognize the pillar of capitalism that is right in there with the far right and uh, the white nationalists. And that capitalism is the tool by which that's gonna happen. So I just always wanna encourage that mutual aid of feeding each other, taking care of each other, healing each other, and holding space for each other is activism. It's very important. And over and over in the book and at the end of the podcast, people say like, take care of yourselves, take care of each other. Because this struggle's not going away. I mean, it's been 30 years and it's not like, Cool, that's done. Now I can finally go colonize the Bahamas. <laughs> so, or the moon. Or the moon, yeah. Oh my God, I'm just gonna start to cry. Here we go. <laughs> so I think maybe not the same type of coalitions can be created based on what you described, but this book fair that most of us attended earlier, there's a bunch of different groups and different people doing uh, focusing their efforts in different ways, but there's so much commonality there and you know, just even the people who had booths next to each other, I could see like, oh, they're talking, they're they're finding ways or they will find ways to work together. So coalitions can absolutely be built and um, you know, credit to the organizers of this event because this is literally how you do that. Um, so that, yeah, that's that's my feeling about that. As far as subculture and belonging, um, you know, when I was given some of these questions in advance, and uh, I really thought a lot about, uh, so one of the other important parts of, you know, the broader coalition of anti-racist activists was the Skinheads Against Racial Prejudice, which I will now refer to as SHARP. Um, and we worked alongside them, uh, ARA did, uh, Coalition for Human Dignity did, and they were, they were just a really important part of combating uh, not the Nazis, the Nazi skinheads specifically. Um, and when they would confront Nazis, they wouldn't just go up and beat the shit out of them, they would go up to them and say, would you like to join us? Would you like to become a sharp? Um, 
if you do not want to, then there will be a problem here. And like, I'm a peacemaker. I, I mean, I, I'm not against uh, violence per se, but I'm not a fan of it either. Um, and, but I really respected the way that the sharps operated just because that wasn't the way that I would want to do things. I respected that uh, they were doing effective work. And so, you know, that opportunity for these Nazis uh, who maybe weren't really bought into the ideology but just wanted a place to belong, they had an opportunity. You know what, actually, yes, I would like to go with you all. I'm not really like fully bought into this whole Nazi bullshit. Um, and sometimes you would interact with these uh, sharps who were like, oh, this guy was a Nazi a month ago. But yeah, you had to just feel it out and be like, you know what? Great, welcome aboard, you know? Like keep a, you know, a watchful eye on them, but uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, I think that is, uh, yeah, I just think there is importance in being, a, we all want to belong somewhere. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's just what, what I started thinking about was um, the importance of yeah, just having something that you belong to, somewhere to put your energy and... Um, I don't know. I, I wish I had a way to put a bow on that, but I don't. <laughs> Doesn't need a bow. But I do think like that's one of the important things about having book fairs like this is like you know, being a person that came of age in the eighties, we would hang out in public. We would hang out there was a visible presence on the streets of freaks and weirdo punk rockers, so you could be like Oh, look! I'm oh, look at that person. Oh, I'm curious. And so you could you could see it. And I feel like because you know, pandemic, internet, blah blah blah, whatever. Like, and also just the privatization of public space mm -hmm. is that we are not in public being a freak flag for you to be like oh, and having activities like the book fair is super crucial because people who might not come this time. I've seen the flyers and then they'll hear about it and then you're giving them a place to go and having places like a bookstore that sells books like this is like you're giving people an opportunity to find you and I think that we need to get better for that because I feel like the Nazis, the white nationalists are excellent at finding people who don't fit in. Yes. And they're yes. very good at targeting people who feel alone and this culture is incredibly excellent at making people feel alone. And we have to really step up, you know, trying to find and collect those people. And I think that um, that's part of belonging and being in public. And also, Jonathan, I remember you talking once about people, former Nazis, and actually making them stay former Nazis by doing research and getting them to talk and tell you stuff if you want to address that. Yeah, I mostly it was just um, leaning on them really hard. Um, mostly. And, and yeah. Giving up phone numbers. And there's a, a bit of a cottage industry over the last few years of uh, NGOs that have popped up uh, that specialize in turning uh, racists, white nationalists, so on and so forth, 
And I think that has limited utility, especially when there are grifters running this stuff. Um, and there's a lot of that. Uh, and, and besides, I mean, uh, um, <laughs> there are effective ways of stopping white nationalists, making people rethink their vigilante forms of racism, at least. Um, and those include social exclusion, beating them up, so on and so forth. Um, and, and those are important. But uh, not everyone has to Sorry, they, they are. Public shaming. Public shaming, sure. Uh, but here's, here's an interesting um, note, is that a lot of that public shaming, doxing and deplatforming rely upon a society, or at least a segment of society, that agrees with you. Okay? So in other words, when you dox a Nazi, which is you're publishing their address, their phone number, their job. We used to do this in the 1980s. It's in the book. Um, we'd go to their places of employment, and we would just harass the shit out of them, right? They'd get fired, laid off, whatever, or they'd quit. Okay, that can be effective. But what happens when, okay, that is no longer effective. Right. Okay, no one gives a shit, because there's so many of them. And I argued in Trump's first term that when Stephen Miller, who was... Trump's point person on immigration, which is to say he was a racist piece of shit, all right, when he was doxxed by, I think it was the Southern Poverty Law Center, as having been, I don't know what it was back then, you know, uh, attending a meeting of open neo-Nazis, something like that. And he was an official in the Trump administration. Okay, when he was doxxed, nothing happened. Okay, that's a red line. That means that those ideas have now migrated so far into the mainstream that social ostracism, public shaming, is no longer effective. What do you do? Um, that, and I think that you know, you know, step by step, these ideas are becoming more accepted, and from places that we're not accustomed to them being articulated. So, for instance, this is an aside, and then I'll be quiet. Um, the kinds of really aggressive anti-homeless, anti-houseless stuff that's happening from Grants Pass to Medford to Portland. Dude, that stuff is so noxious and deadly during this last cold snap. We have to raise the question, as many of us have for years, is there a social base for fascism among elites? And I'm saying there is, and it's developing. Yeah. Those people will turn to, they will turn to the thugs, and they have the money and the power to do that, and I think they're doing it. Um, and that is, again, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, so watch these, what, what are they, they're, they're like uh, thresholds that get, that the far right continues to breach, where things that weren't possible to articulate without public shaming become, well, kind of questionable then they become oh accepted by a small number of you then they're so on and so forth i said i'd be quiet yeah jonathan what do we do about all this shit corvallis antifa uh there, there are you know in other groups not not just them but because they've been here they have a track record rose city antifa for focusing on the far right and the fash the the larger stuff you know with the genocide going on in gaza i don't have answers i'm not here to you know I, I don't know. All I'm saying is that it's a very dangerous time. Um, 
and uh, what is to be done is we, we have to do the research and we have to do the community organizing. We have to defend our communities. Our most vulnerable communities are going to be those um, that the fascists target. And we can't let them uh, attack them, not without uh, community defense. It did happen here. Mid Valley. A panel discussion from some of the creators of the book and podcast. Mutations. About anti-fascist action and organizing in the Pacific Northwest. And I want to thank everybody for sticking it out. It got a little heavy there, but if I know my listeners, you're with me on this one. Yeah, it's Mid-Valley Mutations here on Sheena's Jungle Room, WFMU. And, uh, yeah, we're getting super personal tonight here in Sheena's Jungle Room. Uh, Post-consumer in the previous hour was kind of laying it all out uh, in, in a way that uh, got super groovy and was very, very interesting. And, and, and now I'm kind of uh, doing one that's uh, a, a little personal as well. Uh, I, I grew up in this scene, and so they are talking about... Uh, places and 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 people and things uh, that uh, I I grew up around uh, hearing and whatnot and so uh, uh, yeah it's 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 been an interesting uh, I, I was immediately galvanized listening to this panel discussion thinking I need to share this with more people uh, I think there's uh, th- th- this is regional and specific to me. But I think this conversation is one people are probably having all over the world and the country and uh, in every scene all over the place. I wanted to give a a special thank you to uh, those hanging out in the chat, including Obadiah, uh, who is my uh, co-host for this program. And and we'll get back to talking uh, together here in a moment. Uh, when we also have uh, all Mr. X and Arvo Zylo and uh, Jeff Yu and Coelacanth and WR, uh, I suspect we've got a lot of lurkers too. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's one of those things where uh, uh, there's a lot to process. And so I wanted to have a little bit of a breaking point right here where everybody can get up, use the restroom, get a sandwich, get a drink that kind of thing, uh, because uh, uh, we got a little bit more uh, that we're going to bring you in hour two. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. Uh, I did want to uh, draw attention to a few things here. Please uh, check out It Did Happen Here podcast.com. Uh, this is the podcast that uh, uh, spawned all of this. Uh, uh, it, it began as these conversations about this time and, and the work that these people did. Uh, and then evolved into this series of podcasts and then a book. And uh, I mean, it, it's, it's just an incredible, it's, it's an incredible example of what happens when you set out to document something without any particular plan to figure out where it's going to go. And, and I suspect as this evolved, everybody kind of looked at each other and realized this is a, this is a podcast. We need to, we need to share this with people and, I mean, just awareness of the thing. I wanted to share it with others as as well. You know, know, there was a little tidbit in that last little conversation there about finding yourself in subculture 
and <clears throat> perhaps uh, other people have a similar experience like this, but it's certainly uh, for me, uh, uh, growing up, everything was so uh, uh, milk toast and mainstream. Uh, we were just watching TV, listening to the, the most uh, uh, pop radio, uh, and, and, and really kind of absorbing just the, the culture that everyone else was soaking in. I recall absolutely being enamored with the, the, the not only punk rock, but just subculture in general and, and finding all these different angles to it. It, 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 it sent me to the library in a way that, uh, you know, I mean, like, this is kind of like what Pete was talking about a little bit earlier is that, you know, like, uh, the punk scene was kind of scary. And there were times when you did not always feel welcome. And uh, it was hard sometimes to fit into these places and into these scenes because the way we looked was so much about how we were judged uh, in those days. And certainly my way that I bonded with all of this was through the research through the reading through zines through records through the the leaflets and pamphlets that you would find at shows and whatnot and i mean i feel like i incubated in this world for years not really i mean i had a zine where i was like yeah i really like carp oh my gosh uh, uh, oh man the halo benders are amazing oh, oh my gosh but i think the other parts of me that were watching these shows letting all this kind of like soak in and trying to figure out my position in all of this you know it's like you you, you don't always uh immediately fit into your surroundings but in some ways you are a, a bit of a cog in them or or maybe cog is a, is too strong of a word you're there among the other gears Anyway, I, I was saying this to Aaron in a, one of the messages that we were trading back and forth about uh, just coordinating the broadcast of this. And I was just saying that, like, being at this panel discussion, I realized that I have this platform here where I can share these kinds of experiences and these kinds of words with other people. And this doesn't have to be a private thing where I have an experience and then I go off and make a radio show about it or whatever and 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 and, and, and internalize it in some way uh, i can actually have share this with people the exact same words that i heard and hopefully uh people respond and it looks like heather has joined us thank you so much uh, uh glad to glad to see you in the chat i did want to draw attention to uh, mo um uh, 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 Bo Stern's uh, zine, which I, I put a link in the chat for it, but I just want to draw, draw attention to it again. Um, uh, it is uh, extra tough. It is about uh, fishing culture, and uh, uh, I mean, Mo is a fisher person uh, uh, by trade, uh, and so it's uh, just about like kind of that world and that life and whatnot. Uh, and uh, yeah, it feels um, very important because I don't know a lot of other people who uh, are like Mo who are. Uh, uh, career fisher people and uh, live amongst the super tough fishing culture. <laughs> Those guys can get rough. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, uh, it's an excellent zine. Uh, most fascinating. Uh, one of the many interesting people uh, involved in the making of this podcast that I, I feel like uh, people uh, want to know more about. 
Oh, hey, and Laura Panic has just joined us as well. Well, you, maybe we should get into the second half of this conversation. So that was the first half. Uh, let is let's get into it. We have, um, for those who are, are, are tuning in just now, we have uh, the some of the creators of the It Did Happen Here podcast, uh, a podcast about uh, anti-fascists uh, working and organizing and trying to save their scene and uh, uh, the places that they live. And uh, as uh, I think Jonathan put it, uh, they won the battle, but uh, unfortunately, the war rages on, and it's it's not going well. Um, this panel was moderated by Aaron Yankee uh, with uh, Mo Bostern, Jonathan Mazaki, and Pete Normal uh, on it. And uh, let's get into it. Here's a, a little more with uh, me and Obadiah. Okay, uh, we are back. Uh, again, uh, Mid-Valley Mutations here, uh, hosting uh, the It Did Happen Here panel discussion from uh, the book bin in Corvallis on January 21st, 2024. Uh, and uh, I'm my co-host uh, today with me, uh, uh, Obadiah Baird. How's it going? Uh, doing well. Yeah. yeah. Now, <clears throat> I wanted to mention, we, we, we talked a little bit about this offline even before we went to this event. Um, uh, our, our connections to the music scene and why this particular conversation, I mean, there's a music and a punk component to this panel discussion but it's about so much more <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so <clears throat> I, I just kind of was you know I, I know my perspective but uh, I was just kind of curious about like why, why this is important to you as well um for me punk rock really shaped my politics um as a young person and to this day and like a through line or underpinning to a lot of like the punk rock of my youth was a strong anti-fascist stance. Yes. <laughs> um, and by the time I was in the punk scene in Oregon in the mid to late nineties, um, a lot of the work that they're talking about in this podcast, I think had been done or I was blithely unaware of it. We were going on like we very much like reaped the benefits of what had come before for us and like and I was aware of it because of the music and because of you know I was mentioning earlier you go to like food not bombs or like other sort of political events and people would talk about what had gone on in the past there was kind of this, this dissemination of information the uh, institutional memory of people who had been there before us and would share stories and yeah like it got passed down so like an example i give is like coming up in the punk scene in the 90s i and i'm not even sure when or how i learned this but i can recognize the iconography of like nazi symbology and tattoos mm. and the idea was that like you needed to know that to be safe to be able to spot right. those people at shows, to be able to protect the scene, to protect yourself. And that was never something that I ended up having to use or know <laughs> right. at the time. But yeah, uh, somehow it just sort of became part of the, the the knowledge that you gained from being in the punk scene. Yeah. I, I think, you know, from my perspective too, like, you know, there, not to say that there wasn't violence or that there wasn't uh, uh, other uh, kind of uh, fascist or Nazi activity in punk sh- the punk scene or at punk shows. I would hear about it, but I think the amount of exposure that I had directly was so greatly reduced because of these efforts. Uh, 
while I was at this discussion, I had this very vivid memory of a girlfriend of mine and I were, we were walking home from somewhere in the morning, the day after some event, and we actually saw spray painted swastikas on a fence. And so we knew from going to shows, there was all these flyers and handouts of like, do you see something? Say something, call us. And so we called and left a message saying, hey, here's the address. And I think... Two days later, we checked and uh, they were absolutely scrubbed and painted over. Yeah. Uh, but then we followed up with the phone call and they were like, "We went and took pictures. We absolutely have evidence. Thank you for reporting." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was one of those things where it's like, I knew to do that because of going to shows at Icky's Tea House and not necessarily because of going to see heavy metal shows from when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I really appreciated this conversation because I think they addressed so many things that I had been feeling and thinking about in terms of how this struggle is still happening and has shifted to Mm -hmm. a new form. Yeah, yeah, and I think actually when I look back on my youth in punk rock, I think one of the failings that our generation had was feeling like the work had been done, and I think... I think we did become a little complacent. I remember talking to people I knew in Portland who were involved in Antifa early on in the early 2000s and kind of feeling like, why why are you so militant? Why are you so... (laughs) Like, why are... You guys should chill out. Hasn't this this work been done already? And then, like, you know, and then, you know, Trump and recent years of politics, I feel like I was so naive looking back now like yeah um, well and, and i think this is the the challenge they they address this in the talk but of, of the changing faces of fascism throughout our lifetimes yeah. just we learn to identify certain symbology and then they just start wearing different clothes yeah, just because they stopped shaving their heads <laughs> and going to punk shows didn't mean they were gone right 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 yeah. and so that, that was the problem is that the things we were looking for disappeared but were replaced by something else that we had to learn to look for later yeah yeah we, we should probably let them get back to it. Uh, uh, we'll check in one more time before uh, we wrap up. But, uh, uh, yeah, let's get back to this uh, panel discussion uh, from the producers of the It Did Happen Here podcast uh, with Aaron Yankee, Mo Bostern, uh, Jonathan Mazzocchi, uh, and Pete Normal. Uh, and uh, it sounds like this. It Did Happen Here. Mid Valley. A panel discussion from some of the creators of the book and podcast. Mutations. About anti-fascist action and organizing in the Pacific Northwest. I did also want to just say, like, there's a way in which I think... Um, I like to study texts on decolonization. I'm currently reading a book called Towards... Uh, it, it's about oh I forget what it's called but the the group that wrote it one of the people is from a group called gesturing towards decolonization and it's an understanding that like we're moving towards it and we have to change the way that we think and approach things and try and merge the whiteness that has been in the way that we've been raised in this framework into an understanding of like what is important and shifting it while still living in capitalism. And so studying texts of decolonization and participating in uh, supporting each other and trying to change the way you think while you're doing this and understanding that um, as somebody that fished commercially for many years and then also hung out in anarchist spaces, I was frequently 
people wouldn't talk to me because I killed things for money. You know? And, uh... <laughs> Like in London, I went all the way to fucking London. I sent them emails. I'm like, you guys have a info shop. I had it. I was in an info shop. Like, hey, I'm from a, you know, like let's make this bridge. And I didn't understand why they wouldn't write me back. They were ghosting me. And I found out like I was literally the house guest of the person who kept voting against me. Wow. And I fucking stayed with them for a week in their squat. And they weren't. They couldn't just say like. Wow, you really don't seem like someone that kills things all the time. <laughs> Let's eat a meal together. You know, we were friends. And then I left and found out, like, what the fuck is that? Like, what is that? And it happens over and over. And left in circles. And we did a talk in Milwaukee. And what was amazing was, like, I was with Mike. And we were talking in a very tiny little bookstore in Milwaukee. But you can hear this woman in the audience doing the Karen thing to Mike in the talk. And then I got attacked and called out, in the talk. And Mike and I were both just like, well, this is kind of awesome. Like, we kind of let the wave settle. It was like getting hit. Well, I'm a fisherman. So we let the wave come over. We're just like this. And then we were all like, did you guys all just see what happened? That was an example. And there wasn't that, a lot, that many people there. And so... It's just important to remember, like, we all want to belong, like Pete was saying. And, and sometimes when we call each other out over, like, wearing leather or a wool sweater because you're super <laughs> vegan or whatever, or just, like, it mean, it's, a, it's a kind of, like, bid for belonging. And even when it's reversed and, it's, and it makes you feel like shit, like, I personally talk a lot about mental health and trauma. A lot of people in the punk scene, a lot of people in activism come from trauma. And we have brains that are wired to react really intensely in emotional ways. And so when somebody triggers our belonging issues like that, it's easy. Like, my whole thing is, like, I'll just talk shit about them fucking 20 years later. <laughs> you know? No, no, it's true. <laughs> I got that apology, though. <laughs> so that's the thing I want to just say, like, that's a way of organizing your mind and changing your body and just training your body. Like, I have had to work really hard to train my body like, it's funny, like, the door opens, and you just watch all of us. If you ever hang out with people that are hypervigilant, we're all just like, <laughs> even though we're still in the talk. And so learn to read that kind of shit in yourself and other people. Take care of your nervous system. Feed your resilience. As you build your coalitions with other people, I'm just really sorry that we are in this place. I feel like as a 56-year-old, I could have, you know... I wish I had done better. We've been fighting this shit for a long time. And like I said, we're in it. And one of my things I'm most grateful for with this book is that I can sit up here looking like this and I can look like an ally to you instead of a Karen. You know, like my freak flag just doesn't, I can't fly it anymore because my fucking hair color used to be Mandarin orange from Manic Panic, but now that's just mainstream. You know, like that's just like someone that wrote a magazine and went, it was like, nah, I might want this. And so it's like that thing when you're Gen X and you're just like, 
oh, it's awesome that your 12-year-old is dying, you're dying your 12-year-old's hair in the seat, but at the same time, you're like, that used to, that used to fucking make something. <laughs> like, you couldn't get a job. And I got hand tattoos. I was like, I'm never going to get a job. And now it's like, everybody, you get a job, and the person interviewing is like, I love your hand tats. <laughs> so... Anyway, that's my. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, if we do end up chatting later, Mo has a really excellent story. Maybe it's published somewhere about the uh, activist piece oh, sharing yeah. the pastries with the activists, which is a little off topic because one of the other things in, that I would like you to talk about is when we talk about um, when we work in coalition and. Uh, we end up policing each other's behaviors and what's the right way and what's the wrong way and whatever and we really have a diversity of tactics philosophy that I don't actually have to like your tactics because you're doing your tactics and I'm doing mine but it's also really hard to bring that into real life when you're like but you're doing diversity of tactics oh my fucking god but Mo has a friend who I'm sure will tell about that also talks about like we are a nation of toddlers and that is uh, just that is our training and we you know we're fighting all kinds of our training we're fighting white supremacist training we're fighting fucking American number one training we're fighting Colonial training, we're fighting that, but I, can you talk about the toddler nation? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend who is, um, she's from Canada and, and grew up with a lived indigenous experience of the Slavey Dene people of uh, the Yukon, and she's Irish also, and she's hilarious and a badass, and she works in food justice like. She just gives everybody food. She's just like, I'm baking cookies for my MAGA neighbors, neighbors, and you can fuck the fuck off. And then she just told me, like, my MAGA neighbors that I bake cookies for just fixed my shit pipe that I haven't been able to have water or flush for a week and a half because of this ice storm. Um, but that's what she says about this. It's a toddler country. And if you think about how toddlers act, if they don't get their way, they have a tantrum. And they only understand their way as, like, they can't see any other way. This is, like, also, it's just, like, we can't share. This is mine. This is also mine. Also, this is mine. And if you don't let me have all my things, I'm just going to scream and cry. And so I think it's really important and helpful. And I always tell her, I told her last night when I was texting her, I'm like, her name's Jen Maynard. I was like, I'm going to be quoting you again tomorrow. <laughs> but she said, you know, I think it's important to identify that toddler behavior. And so that instead of engaging with the language that the toddler is using, regardless of the age of the toddler, just like how do you act with a toddler? I don't have kids personally, but maybe some people who have children <laughs> can model for us, like, or talk about that, or get some parenting lessons in your own brain so that when you encounter a toddler who is like in charge of your reproductive choices, you know, like, that you know an appropriate way to respond. Is that the kind of thing you want to say? A, di a friend of mine was talking about having this experience of having a, oh yeah. Um, just some people who were trying to get some activism done and then this kid didn't like the tactic and didn't like the way it was going, a young white kid. 
and he was stood up and just started oh, yeah. yelling and and then you know was like upset with the reaction that he got and some of that could be white fragility and some of that could be like no one reacts very well getting screamed in the face and it's hard to pull that apart being a thousand miles away from that experience and not you know it's like who knows but that he could not see his part in this relationship while other people are trying to actually talk to people that they disagree with and say like why are you so afraid like all of this power and control is based in fear of losing it losing yeah losing it all kinds of other things that people have made up and so if you can get my friend's approach was to get people to understand that it was coming from fear and then maybe they could real have a realization that they don't need to be afraid or whatever but it's a very long process and she is very patient and was then like what well, this kid had this reaction and so we were just kind of talking about that and that's part of the diversity of tactics that you know it's like how how do i work in coalition with this person who won't let me have my diversity of tactics but will shut me down to get their diversity of tactics so you know it's just it's a lot of the interpersonal stuff and now i'm excited to tell her about like the toddlerness because she is also a parent and i think that that will help her kind of key into at least what jen maynard has to say about yeah. that pete you have them um yeah, I just think when, you know, a lot of the people on the right, we, you know, we know about how they're, um, well, I'm not going to try to cite the science, but right, there's this idea that, um, you know, Republicans are more driven by fear and, and uh, people on the left are more motivated by logic or whatever, right? Um, if somebody knows the science better than I do, please feel free to fill in the blanks. But, um, you know, the way that somebody like Trump operates, the way that he drums up support is through fear, right? It's like, you should be scared of all these people, but I can protect you. Well, that sounds fantastic. Please protect me. Um, I think it's the same thing that Tom Metzger did. Uh, he drummed up fear in the people who were following him. And, you know, Fear can turn to hate. Fear can turn to anger very easily. Um, I think when we're interacting with each other as activists, uh, as community members, whatever it is, uh, if we can increase our capacity for love of each other, of, of the cause, um, I think we're going to be much more effective in the work that we do, but that, ma- that means managing our fear response. Um, and, and so, yeah, go to therapy, meditate, <laughs> take a big fucking breath, um, and, and, you know, go forward with love, be open to the ideas of others. They, they don't need to intimidate you if you feel confident in, your, in yourself, but it's often when we're insecure in our own ideas that um, we're threatened by the ideas of others. Um, so, yeah, just... Proceed with love. That's that's what I. Sorry, I'm a big fucking hippie over here. So. <laughs> yeah. 
and it's good, and we can disagree. <laughs> because I'm not a hippie and never have been. Um, and, uh, not that I, yeah, whatever. Uh, but I think there's No snaps a, for love, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of politely disagree. Uh, I, I'm just not sure that these are, I don't know, categories that, that are going to help us understand the threat that we face. Um, indeed, if there is a we, um, and I hope that there is a we here, there's a, you know, anarchist, socialist, radical community. That's where I'm at home. That's where I feel good. That's where I find love. Okay, and I want that elsewhere. I just have trouble finding it there. In any case, uh, you know, a part of the right is not afraid. Okay, and they're not afraid of losing anything. They are triumphantly marching forward to take what the hell is left that they think belongs to them. Yeah. And that's a little different. Okay? The people in power is it, I mean. Well, that, well, there's a lot of, well, yeah. wh whichever. Okay, um, no debates here. <laughs> but just if, if we, there's a term, uh, psychologistic, okay? Well, when you reduce, you know, social and economic phenomena to psychological right. Terms, yeah, you, yeah, I think it messes with your praxis, which is an old term that leftists have used for years, where you articulate the theory that you're using and the practice, the actions that you're doing. And if you think that, well, anyways, I think we should just, we need mutual aid, we yeah. need love, we need, I'm not arguing against that. I am arguing, however, that these are not terms that are going to help us fight the right. Right. Okay? Be careful with those. There is a whole, more cottage industries, a whole cottage industry of folks who say, you know, Trump is basically about fear and hate. There's a political economy there. Yeah. Okay? There, in other words, there are vested interests that have, um, you know, a, a that, that are trying to break unions, that are trying to, uh, oh, well, uh, but build walls at the borders, right? They believe not just in borders, they believe in walls. These are, you know, that's not, sure, there's hate behind that, but there's also, again, a political economy. There's politics and economics, and we, we need to have a good working understanding of that um, to guide our fight. Uh, what's most important is that we, we have to fight. And if we did anything correct in the late 1980s and 90s, we, we fought. We got people together, and uh, there's something that's in the book that I think is important. Um, you'll read, um, you know, powerful public figures, uh, columnists, um, journalists, so on and so forth, who thought what we were doing was totally ridiculous, was not impactful, and that we were exaggerating the threat of the far right um, in order to line our pockets or for whatever, for selfish reasons. And you're going to find that today. You'll find the same thing in 2024. Right, eight years of the Trump phenomenon and whatnot, people still discount this. And um, I think we need to be very uh, solid in the fact that if we do nothing else, we fight. We do community defense, we fight them back. Always, everywhere we go where they are. Yeah. So, can I just also say, Jonathan, there's nothing no. that you, 
There's nothing that you said that I disagree with. Right. No, yeah, and I'm not disagreeing with you. Okay. I just have a visceral response. I get it. I just have a visceral response, period. I understand. I don't think Trump is afraid at all. Yeah. yeah. No, they're, they're I, I'm just saying he's he's a fear merchant, you know, among other things, to, to get his needs met, whatever, as nefarious as they are. That's, that's all I'm going to have. I mean, if you can identify someone as not a human being or as less of a human being, then you can sweep them off the streets and build the wall and build a canal through their homeland so that you don't have to pay money to Egypt for things. Um, we're gonna have questions. Q and A. Maybe who's got a question? Get a question. All, All right. right. More comment. You can rant. Marcy. Oh. Yay! Yay. Um, yeah. I get a question for all of y'all. Um, at the end of the podcast, y'all kind of talk about the trajectory of um, a lot of the anti-fascist work y'all were doing, and how um, I don't know if we were to say it, it was going into the digital age or whatever, but. Um, things were moving away from the offices and, and paperwork, like y'all said. Um, and y'all used like uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center as like an enormous resource before internet. Um, what, where do you think we are now, as far as um, how, with the information we have, and, the, and still the SPLC being like a huge resource still? Um, are we getting kind of these information? information titans as, as the Southern Poverty Law Center in different regions of the U.S. that are as deeply as effective as, uh, as it was back then for fighting fascism in specific areas. Um, I guess the answer would be like different crews, but different entities that are kind of like a more non-profit So can I just rephrase your, yeah, like, yeah, say your question, question back? Was that a question about Referencing how the importance of the Southern Poverty Law Center 30 years ago as a source of information and support, um, and what does that look like today? Like, are they represented as titans? I like that you used that word. Uh, and, and where are they regionally? Is is there a similar thing today? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I think so. And one of the things I want to say is. Ed editing the and co-writing co-writing the narration for the podcast and listening to everybody's stories and weaving them together I you listen to the things that are there but then you can also hear the things that aren't there and I harassed Aaron into giving me Jonathan's phone number so that I could call him and ask him this question because he kept talking in the in the podcast about um, I think it was the Southern Poverty Law Center and doing things, he was like, we weren't doing things like them. We weren't doing that, but he wasn't, I wasn't hearing what they were doing. And so one of the things that the Southern Poverty Law Center was not doing was collecting local information like Jonathan was talking about earlier. So there you go. So, so back in the day, in the 80s, the Southern Poverty Law Center was not really what it is now. Okay? It was primarily formed as a cash cow for Morris D's. I'm going to be kind of dismissive here, okay? Uh, they sued the Klan. They sued the far right. It's true. They also built a multi-million dollar endowment and um, had really awful, um, I think, racist uh, practices within their organization. They were kind of like a, you know, an NGO that did not practice, um, uh, you know, 
leftist kind of stuff, okay? And even within the civil rights movement, they were very, they were criticized because of their white leadership, so on and so forth. Fast forward, okay? Southern Poverty Law Center, the workers there, right, was, was, was one of the early NGOs that signed a statement calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, okay? That would have never happened in the 80s with the Southern Poverty Law Center because they, along with the Anti-Defamation League, weren't helping grassroots anti-racist groups. They were actually undermining what we were doing. And there are groups that call themselves civil rights groups that continue to do that today. ADL is a great example. I wouldn't work with them. It's very dangerous. They're going to pass your stuff to cops. Um, so uh, the SBLC, uh, the board, by the way, I think distanced themselves from the statement. But the people who work there, a lot of black people, um, did sign that. Then that, that's a pretty huge deal, I think. And it says that, you know, our um, main fight the right groups have developed. Similarly, political research associates, if you're looking for more academically oriented information about the far right, but important information, <laughs> nonetheless, um, PRA uh, has really good stuff. So where are we? I think that the Torch Network is better for us. That knits together the different Antifa groups. Um, we need all of it. We need academics. We need, you know, practical on-the-ground militant organizations. You need the full panoply in order to fight this. Um, because, I, 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 I don't know, I, I think that, you know, there's a potential for death squads to come. There are, you know, if you look at other societies that have begun to be strained in the ways that ours, are, you know, our, this society is, I think you can see different sorts of political phenomena that tend to come about. When elites get radicalized and people who are white people in particular in this country who would otherwise be couch potatoes become activated, that's a social base for fascism. And um, I'm sorry, it went way beyond SVLC. <laughs> Oh, it's back. Oh, yeah. Uh, other more questions. Unless you want to <laughs> say more. Um, I guess I have an expansion. Um, I don't know. I feel like, like as a person of color, getting into any amount of anti-racist organizing, um, specifically out here. Oh, you talked about it earlier about like, um, just it's extremely white and it's very daunting. Um, and it's while it's inviting based on where you're at, I feel like. The foundation of it can uh, can be more driven by love um, and can be more driven by community and where you're at. Um, and I don't know. I I was I was in the Midwest before this, and like I could talk to Mike about this one. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's different out there because there is there the, the you know there's a lot more um, right, you know a lot of different people living out there. Um, the community I was from was like mostly black, um, but you could have a very diverse crew where you're coming from. And a lot of that, a lot of what I heard on the podcast when, when Mike was talking was um, a lot about um, being like having the brotherly love or having an expression of being a family um, and, and kind of tying that into um, breaking racial boundaries um, and, and kind of bridging um, you know, the divide that like there was a lot of bigotry at the time, but that, this, this work brought people together um, and it made people in their community safe because they knew that it was there. It was there to protect. Yeah. 
that's I think that's why I was talking about like civil rights kind of groups because it's like as you know kind of like kind of distant as they are from like the politics and bits of it. Um, they're a little they're they're a lot easier entry wise for um, you know anybody to get into kind of organizing and that's usually what you hear. Um, so I don't know. I'm thinking I'm thinking people of color are usually defaulting to civil rights groups and then they might kind of warm out to these kind of different types of work. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. No, it's fine. It's great. I just was like, I don't think there's a question in there. I feel like that was really important, and I appreciate you sharing that. And I will definitely pass that along to Mike. Um, I know that you were both have roots in Chicago and really wanted to see him tonight, so I'll let him know he was missed. And um, yeah. I had shared with Marcy earlier uh, that Mike and I were on tour and Mike shared with me um, sort of a disconnect for him that he has to live with or house in his body where he can, he frequently finds himself, he, he has made a specific decision, a very intentional decision to focus his music and his poetry in liberation. And so he finds um, a really welcome home in anarchist organizing and then he's mostly in an all-white space as a black man and then when he is in his cultural home he doesn't have the political connection that he has and so i think that's the piece like that's the conversation that marcy was referencing when we were talking earlier today and that is um something that mike shared with me on tour at the beginning on the very first night when we were in milwaukee and it definitely proved true over the eight days of our tour, the nine days of our tour. Um, and it definitely takes a toll. It takes a toll. Uh, so that's just a reality that I appreciate you bringing up. Any other questions? In 2020, in front of the Capitol in Salem, we stood against Kyle Brewster with the maggots. And just uh, thank you. you yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I remember. Yeah. You know, they're the Proud Boys. They yeah. are patriots. Yeah. It's it's mutating, but it's the same shit. Yeah. And that was a helpful thing. Like I was saying to somebody earlier today, we wrote this podcast during the pandemic. The interviews were done before that, but that's when we actually sat down and Aaron got us all writing and working on it. And so we knew the stuff that was happening on the streets and it really informed our um, opportunity to, it, there are certain moments in the book where you can see the like different diversities of tactics where people said like, yeah, you know, and then we got uh, Randall Krager locked up in prison and that was a real win for us. And then we had another interviewer person that we interviewed saying, yeah, and then Randall Krager, after we put him in prison, started one of the most successful international white supremacist gangs that only ended in, uh, was it 2014? Or t with, with the Sikh yeah. temple killing. And so there was somebody that was tied to that. So um, prison isn't the answer. Kyle Brewster's been in prison many times. And he comes from a, a liberal, upper middle class home. And his mother was a progressive liberal. And that man was in rehab when he was 13 years old. So I don't, it's just, 
Yeah, that's the thing I like about right. the carceral state doesn't. Yeah. No, it breeds it. I mean, you want you want to make a white supremacist send a white guy to prison, you know? So yeah, again, thank you so much for standing up against that. Yeah, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. <laughs> yep. More questions. Yes. Um, I think something that I, as somebody who has been organizing for a little while, have observed. I'm sure lots of other people have is that I think a lot of the times the anti-capitalist left kind of does these big surges to certain topics. You know, there's obviously been like, you know, people, I, I've heard, heard, heard a lot of people like say, there's the anti-globalization movement, then there was Occupy, then there was anti-fascism and like, you know, whatever. And there's like these big kind of like waves where things go up and down and up and down. Um, I'm curious, like, as I think we're kind of coming to this end of anti-fascism being really culturally relevant to mainstream, um, how do you see, like, it being maintained? I think that there's definitely energy leaving that movement, um, uh, you know, after having seen, like, you know, so many people who were really, really into it during the Trump years, and it feels like that's waned in its uh, position within discourse, and I think that that kind of happened as the 90s entered the 2000s as well, and the ARA started to decline. So I'm curious if folks have thoughts on that. I mean, I, I just think, I just think these things ebb and flow, you know? Um, you, you have your successes, uh, you know, maybe like for us it was, we drove the Nazis into hiding. They still existed. They probably, a lot of them, thought the same thoughts, but they weren't quite as organized. They grew out their hair. Um, you know, they weren't, they weren't coming to our spaces anymore. They weren't coming to all ages shows anymore, at least not the punk ones. They were going to metal shows and, you know, they were there, they just weren't where we were and that was great. So we had this success and, you know, some would say, removing Trump from office was a success and yes but obviously let's whole other topic um, so you know those people still exist right and they're going to make themselves known eventually and that's usually going to spark people and it's 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 the things that they're going to call attention to themselves with uh, it's it's the trauma that they're going to inflict on others that will probably bring that around again. I, I think it'll probably happen naturally, but yes, these, um, you know, the evil does not go away. Uh, it It's just driven back and then it keeps coming back. So I, I expect there'll be a reaction. I mean, that's kind of how these things happen, but I don't know, definitely curious other thoughts. I have a thought and I can't wait for Jonathan's response, but is it like in, in, to this question and then I see your question? And that is, um, as a Gen X person coming up, we had um, almost no mentors. I mean, if I was in Detroit, maybe I could name Grace Lee Boggs as a mentor, but I was surrounded as a young queer person by people who told me I didn't know shit, that uh, it was all about the 70s, and if, if, you know, we should have been there in Chicago at 68, or we should have been there. And you know wherever, and it was like the 70s were all it was about, and we didn't know anything. We were just we voted Reagan in, and we were focused on all this stuff. And so as a young person hearing this stuff, I just was like, okay, fuck you. 
I guess I'll just organize with my peers. And in some ways, that's super positive. And um, I did that for a long time. But it's hard to it's hard to stay afloat. And so when we hurt each other, as we know, as we did, or as and when we got into trouble or had health problems, we had to be we had to isolate from each other in order to heal or survive or like you you know whatever you you get injured. Your friends are in the same boat as you. So I, I'm just trying to say like an intergenerational weaving, like looking to bring elders in. I'm studying to be a decent elder because I don't have anybody to teach me how to do that. And, um, although I'm looking at you, Jonathan. <laughs> I'm just an old cranky An older. I am not an elder. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, people that are, have stability, people that have homes, people that have... Yeah. Ways to, t I know, right? Me neither. <laughs> Same. But like, you know what I'm trying to say here? You guys get what I'm trying to say? Yeah. If you if you weave the strand vertically and horizontally, it will be stronger, right? And I just want to say, you said something about meditation. As a person who had cancer and every fucking doctor told me to meditate, people with PTSD, meditation is really hard if you have that. So... Although I do think meditation is a great tool, um, handwork. Yes, there I are see, many. I many see all of you. Like I see so many people with their <laughs> stitching. Yeah. Many, and if you knit, you get the same brain waves as they get from meditation. Yeah. There's, Just saying. Meditation is not for everyone. No. My point being, there are many things that <laughs> one can do. Thank you. I, know, I just wanted to add them in with the meditation. Appreciate it. I have a little response in my body. <laughs> it's a long struggle. And uh, Corvallis Antifa, for instance, has been around 10 years, right? So through the ebbs and flows, uh, regardless of where we are in that struggle, we need the capacity to be able to analyze what those forces are doing um, so that if they're uh, waxing or waning, uh, we are just up in their face and giving them a hard time. So, you know, wh where are we now? Uh, I mean, uh, things are not like the summer of 2020, right? We're not battling them daily in the streets. Um, the stuff didn't happen in Salem. That was also 2020, right? Yeah. Uh, 20, you know, but look at what's happening. I mean, who, who's to say? It's 2024. Most people thought that the Trump phenomenon was gonna be done and over, right? And before that, people were saying, oh, the Christian right, all of these silly, you know, uh, culture wars are going to just, you know, go away because the country is becoming more secular or whatever. There were so many arguments and so many academics from across the political spectrum who announced the death of one form or another of extremism, right? over and over and over. You'll read about them now. It's coming, everything's gonna be okay. Neoliberalism is gonna right the ship of state and, and yet the stuff keeps coming back. And for me, one of the primary, if not the primary drivers of this is economic and social inequality. Mm -hmm. When you get what we're, you know, this, this, I mean, um, yeah, so, so long as we have that, 
so long as we have billionaires, yeah. right, we're gonna have this stuff. Yeah. And uh, we just, we have no choice but to fight it. It's yeah. a long fight, and hopefully it's a long, because if it's not a long fight, um, well, then may we won or they did. But if they do, there's, there's no after a real win by fascists. If there's a fascist regime in this country, then you have to start looking at other, you know, really massive societal convulsions that, and in this country, that would mean, um, you know, the ferocity of that regime, we know who it will be targeted at, right? We should be clear on that. Um, and that does not take away from the misery and inequality that exists already just under routine run-of-the-mill capitalism. It doesn't take away from that at all. It just says that fascism here would be a special kind, right? A special kind of misery. Um, and uh, we, we, you know, there's, we have no choice. Um, and, and it also doesn't mean that we can't form other organizations focused on climate change, focused on indigenous rights, land back, all kinds. It's all totally crucial and important. I mean, yeah, okay. All interrelated. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Question. Yeah, sorry. Good. And so before I have a question, um, it is about quarter till when the bookstore closes, so I think we'll have this be the last question unless someone else is really burning to ask a question, and then we'll have a little wrap-up, so. I was going to ask a question about, like, the move of white supremacists from street gangs into, like, institutional organization, but I actually think that I want to talk about, I want to ask about, like, of you as elders in development. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because I think this conversation is like always uh, necessary just to keep it like simple and open. Like what do you, what do the four of you, not just you Mo who brought it up, but the four of you, I'm curious who has thoughts about what is, like what is keeping us estranged from each other and like what needs to happen to move the four of you from that side of the table back over here? Does that make sense? It's kind of a big question, but if anything comes up. <laughs> what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do different? I don't know that if we're we should not do anything doing, different. We're like I mean, us elders. Like what, what, what are we not, how are we not serving you? Be like younger people. Yeah, I mean, I think that young people are absolutely brilliant and whether we know it or not, have a good pulse on what is happening right now and what needs to happen. And also, we can be really fucking full of ourselves. And, like, we as 20-somethings can't carry institutional knowledge in our bodies unless we're spending a lot of time researching that could instead be spent in conversation and or action as, you know, elements of that research. Um, I don't know. I just want to see young people talk to older people at events like this. Maybe it's already happening, but... Well, I think coming down to an event, like, this is one of the ways that I can, you know, I... I got off, I, I switched my shift with my coworker, and she's, like, not into it, so I had to do a lot of, like, you know, Starbucks cards or whatever for her, and and... Not uh, Starbucks, yeah, Mom. Yeah. Come on My now. boss gave me one for Christmas, so I'm just gonna give it to her. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Harm free. Uh, they're not getting my money. <laughs> um, and also, she, that's where she turns her coffee. 
And it's a diversity of tactics. So that's that the fight I'm gonna have? Like Starbucks with my coworker? No, it's not the place I'm gonna fight about it. Uh, she's, she's, like we can all thank her for my being able to be here today, you know? And so like I didn't have to go without my pay today because we switched shifts. And it, so it was like, this is the effort that we're making. Pete drove up from, or from Eugene and showing up like this. I mean, I feel like when I try to talk to folks, I'm not a teacher. Um, I don't, I can't understand if uh, what I'm saying is offensive or, like I feel like I get retail language from people in your generation. Like, I don't understand how to break through the, like, have a nice day. Is that me? No, no. I, I but that's, like, my experience. Yeah, I like, think, I think there's 20-year-olds living upstairs of me. Okay, you want to talk? This is an attempt I made. They have a fucking dog with separation anxiety. Who's great. Like, the, the old dog died. Very sad. Goodbye, Ethel. The, the dog that's there, Cubby, screaming. Like, the two people are gone. The dog is screaming. The whole time. I have been told it's rude to record that and play it back to them, so I did not do that. <laughs> so, my neighbor, my next door neighbor, the Gabers, they were like, uh, are, will you tell, like, I will take that dog on the walk with my dog. And like, we would have a little, a cool little dog walking, like, emotional dog support group situation. And I was like, oh, this is gonna be the thing that breaks through the fucking retail language. And then what happens is I text the, you know, I text them or I write them an email. Oh yeah, we were texting. Then they got new phones and I have never had their phone number since. So it's like they're cutting communication off. And I'm just like, there's no way for me to be like, the only way I know how to support them is to just be like, I'm just here. A fucking barnacle limpet. Like, I don't care about I don't, Your dog is screaming. So I email, and I work from home, and I'm a writer. And I email, and I'm like, hey, Jeannie next door. She'll take the dog out. And they still have blood. And they were like, oh, my God, we're so sorry. The next day, they brought home a cage, and they put the dog on Prozac. Jesus. So this is me trying to connect <laughs> so this is what happened like, i don't know that's sad fucking story. i know it was like a punch in the guts Man, and you worked in a maritime theme you used barnacle in it oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> thank you they're actually really good to eat uh, not the barnacles but the limpets yeah <laughs> oh i'm just glad i think us having this conversation is they just have to happen right these conversations have yeah. to happen like that's kind of what it is um you know there's a real thing that happens in activism where you burn out right like you are working with people and then i mean you'll see it you've probably already seen it. they have different ideas you have different ideas and then rather than like doing the work to figure out how we can combine our efforts, combine our ideas to like work toward a common goal. I, and I feel like I'm just saying the same thing over and over, which is like, you know what? I'll just do my thing. Y'all do your thing. You don't talk t to each other again. And then the two things aren't that successful. And then it's like, God, that 
fucking asshole. Like, why didn't they want to work with me? Well, why didn't they want to... These kinds of things go on and then you're just like, you know what, I'm just going to go live my life. Um, I'm kind of done doing this work because it doesn't... It's a lot of times not that gratifying. And, um, you know, and then life happens, right? Like, health health problems. Uh, you know, you get in a position where you're a parent and taking care of an elderly parent. Yeah. And it's like, I don't have the bandwidth, you yeah. know? Um, and I'm, I'm finally coming to a point in my life where I'm like, okay, I think I actually have the bandwidth again. Um, it's, it's, you still have the desire, but there's, it's like the sense of futility. So yeah, I mean, for me, like coming to this event is, I want to figure out how I can do this. You know, I went to all, a lot of the tables and I, some, most everyone I talked to was really wonderful and welcoming. And some people look at me like, oh, who's the cop? You know, um, and I get it. You know, I do, but um, and it's fair. It is. I was like trying to straddle the line between like professional and something else. Uh, yeah, yeah, because yeah, because cops wear the shirt, right? No, like I would wear a crass hoodie. Come on, y'all. Uh, anyway, I'm gonna just pass the mic. There you go, Jonathan. I don't know. How are you? How can you insert yourself into the lives? Of or how do we make you welcome? I felt very welcome at the anarchist book fair, even though you know there's some probably cop stuff that <laughs> goes on with how I look and whatnot. Um, I, I really don't have an answer to to that though. Um, yeah, we just struggle. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jonathan's definitely not a cop, y'all. <laughs> He's a cop yeah. of the Nazis. He goes in yeah. and writes the yeah. Nazis. No. Uh, <laughs> Alright, we have under ten minutes before okay. the doors. Well, Aaron, well, you work us. with young people. I do work with young people. Um, I agree that you all are very brilliant. And I feel like you carry a lot more anxiety than our generation yes. carried we had a lot more freedom yes we had a lot more we had a lot less guidance for good and ill uh <laughs> i was riding the bus by myself at five years old that sounds like child abuse today but it really was <laughs> not <laughs> yeah. um so i think just like we like we all just have to be a little braver at an individual level of like yes. taking the risk to be like, hello. What kind of for you? What? Yeah. And you don't have to start with like, hi, Antifa or Antifa. You know, then that stuff can come and you're just like, oh, blah, 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 blah. I also feel like um, personally, I approach activism, I've always approached activism as a person of the media. Um, I get, I do not really understand how we can both document our activism while also having the safety of the security culture in these times. So there's a lot of, that's something to like have a conversation about of like, 
if we're going to have institutional knowledge, then we need to record our stories. How do we record our stories in a way that keeps people safe? Yeah. How, like, you know, and I'm super curious about that. Because we, one of the things that we did not get to, but I think is a clear part of the book, is that our story, this story, our stories are not being told. And if they are being told, they are being told so fucked up and so wrong. And bad so writing. Bad writing. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> also bad writing. <laughs> but like, um, one of our friends was talking about like a panel that they were on with Eleanor Langer's excellent book, A Hundred Little Hitlers. Hopefully it's on sale here and you should all read it. Um, but anyway, um, but she was on a panel with people from the Oregonian talking about the movement and that he was like furious. Was that you who was furious? Or? It was empty. Uh, I would yeah. not have been on a panel. No, no, but in the audience, <laughs> just like, <laughs> like those people were actively labeling us Nazis, actively labeling us a gang, actively like undermining what we Endangered. were trying to do, which was fighting for justice and equality and telling the story. So, and there's a, in the afterward, which I really love, is still happening. It was happening with OPV when they tried to cover it. Um, so I feel like we are keeping our own archives, telling our own stories is super, super crucial. And then being able to share it with folks like you and getting to get your stories down before. Like one of the things that I have intentions of doing sometimes is doing interviews with people. You see the documentaries where it's like, oh, everyone's interviewed when they're 75 years old and they've forgotten so much stuff. So it's like, I want a future elders video bank of like, cool, what actually happened? Great. And then it can just sit there. You don't have to make a thing with it right now, you know? So collecting your own stories with people that you trust and then you have it. There is an archive and whatever you do with it later, great, but you fucking caught it. So catch your stories and at 655 thank you so much for being here and It did happen here. Mid Valley. A panel discussion from some of the creators of the book and podcast. Mutations. About anti fascist action and organizing in the Pacific Northwest. Cool. Well, uh, let's wrap things up here. It's uh, uh, Mid Valley Mutations, and uh, you just heard a wonderful panel conversation with a little bit of a QA at the end uh, from the uh, makers of the It Did Happen Here podcast. And uh, in case I didn't make it clear, I'm going to put lots of links to how you can find the. Now, this was an award-winning podcast. I hope people have heard of it, at least the, the people from the Northwest who are <laughs> in the listening audience. I think it's a very important podcast. Uh, one of the things that I was talking with to a friend of mine offline when I mentioned this event and was talking about the book and whatnot, they brought up, because they grew up in Southern California, and so they brought up similar things that had happened in their scene. Mm-hmm. And so we had the realization that there is probably a version of this story for every community in America. <laughs> so one of the previous events that the book been hosted was actually for a book from PM Press called We Go There Where They Go, which is a right. history of anti-racist action. Yeah. Which is is sort of a broader, more national view of 
a I, very similar struggle. And I believe Jonathan Mazoki or Mazoshi is uh, was involved in that uh, as well because uh, uh, I think they used yeah. a lot of his research for. Yeah, that was also a great event, and uh, it's yeah. a great book. Yeah, it, so I mean, there's definitely more stories in this realm <laughs> that uh, that uh, need to be covered. Uh, since this one spoke so specifically to the Mid Valley and events that uh, I feel like uh, were close to home for me, mm-hmm. I really wanted to share this with others. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, did you have anything else you wanted to mention in closing? As uh, uh, just kind of a, a put a cap on this, or one of the, one of the great things I thought about this event, and also about that earlier event I mentioned for where we go, where they go, is. Um, Seeing young activists, hmm. um, I did want to mention this in the you. audience, um, taking on sort of the lessons and and the the especially during the Q and A, the conversation uh, right. between the people who had been there and had done the early sort of anti-fascist organizing and uh, the chance to sort of hand down some of those lessons. Yeah. Um, you know, the world has changed a lot. Obviously, there are things that need to be modified or changed or abandoned, but you don't know what those things are until you, you know your history, until you know what's come before, and until you know like how people have organized in the past. Yeah, I, 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 that was something. You know, when I when I was driving to this event, and then before I knew what it was going to be like, I had this idea of like, well, you know, this is probably might be this could be like a. Um, uh, 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 80s and 90s flashback reunion night where it's like a bunch of older punks getting together, rem- remembering the way things used to be. <clears throat> and it was not that at all. I mean, the age range, not just of the younger people, but of even older people and whatnot. Like, I was very impressed with the people who were very curious and interested in this event uh, and wanted to keep the conversation going and keep it current and not just have it be about what happened back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think there's a lot of important lessons that you can learn both about how organizing is effective and also about how it erodes over time or gets derailed or, you know. Yeah. You can both you can both take positives and learn how to avoid pitfalls. I think uh, it was a conversation that Mo and Aaron were having about as time goes on, you start to feel the effects of this work for years upon years upon years and uh, you start to worry are you inaccessible to younger generations in terms of your experience versus their experience uh, and so was, I, I liked hearing that because I was struggling with that as well of like am I just this guy who remembers things from the 90s and says oh hey this is what it used to be like or am I having an impact now and yeah. going to that event and seeing the intergenerational conversation really made me feel much better about my position in all of this and how I am part of that larger dialogue and not just a, a one-sided uh, participant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, thank you so much, not just for uh, helping make these events possible, uh, but also for uh, for co-hosting with, this, uh, with me here. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll put some links in uh, the chat uh, um, to some of your music and whatnot that uh, you've done before. Uh, we've had you on Great. as a performer and, and whatnot. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't necessarily want this to be about 
that, but certainly uh, uh, I feel like your music is also informed by all of this as well. <laughs> so, in yeah. a way, like our creative lives are just completely entangled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Next time. <laughs> I want to wrap things up here and send you home with one last little story. But thank you very much, everybody, for joining me. And, and thank you very much to uh, Aaron, who worked with me to uh, get this conversation to you uh, and uh, for letting me do this. Uh, uh, you know, I, I was this uh, a weird uh, uh, guy with a bow tie and, and a pocket protector who... Uh, almost accosted them at a event at a bookstore <laughs> and uh, uh, they really did not have to return my email and instead uh, they did and, and, and now uh, we have this uh, so thank you Aaron uh, and thank you everybody for listening and sticking around Obadiah and Heather and anyone else lurking out there who's still enjoying this um, yeah you know, certainly uh, I recall uh, an, a Jello Biafra conversation at a spoken word event that I went to in the 90s where he was talking about how the left is so divided by do you like crass enough or are you vegan enough or what have you uh, and how he, he theorized at this event uh, then that this was going to be the ultimate uh, struggle for the left uh, for the remaining decades uh, as we try to find ways to fight the right and I am astonished <laughs> to say, <laughs> as I myself become an older person, that uh, Jello Biafra was right. <laughs> Maybe only in that way. No, I, he was right in more than more than just that way. But uh, uh, every once in a while, Jello Biafra. What's that uh, saying about a, a broken clock? Every once in a while, Jello Biafra is also right. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, you know, yeah, I, I think back to that conversation quite often because I think that. We are still struggling with this. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly think about this as we continue to divide each other over how do you feel about COVID? How do you feel about the last election? How do you feel about the next election? How do you feel about music? Uh, wait, you haven't seen The Wire yet? You know, I, I mean, I feel like as all of these things continue to subdivide us on the left in different ways, it inevitably spells a certain kind of future that we are uh, hoping to avoid. But how do we bridge that gap? I don't know. I think we're all struggling with it. Uh, we're trying to deprogram ourselves. We're all trying to go to therapy. We're all trying to figure this out. Maybe uh, more music will help. So yeah, I want to close with this uh, last piece here uh, where Obadiah and I talk about a song uh, that is very important to him and how it relates to an evening that actually came up in this panel conversation twice about an evening in Salem, Oregon, uh, where a bunch of people were kind of fighting it out on the, the Capitol. Uh, so I'm going to play that here uh, uh, at the end. And uh, what can I say? You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no show. Be seeing you.
One fine morning I woke up early Bella Ciao Bella Ciao Bella Ciao One fine morning I woke up early To find the fascists at my door It's not just that music has become more important to us due to our current political and social environment that we're living in, but there's actually something happening with certain songs that become parts of our lives and then through strange turns of circumstance, we actually end up acting them out to some degree. Little did I know that this was going to happen to my friend Obadiah uh, here in Salem. How did you first discover the song that we're talking about? So there's this song, it's called Bella Ciao, and it's a traditional like anti-fascist Italian folk song in the 1940s when, um, when you know, the fascists were running Italy, when Mussolini had taken power, and then Italian like anti-fascist fighters were fighting uh, the forces of Mussolini and then Hitler. The song Bella Ciao was actually a song prior to that about um, the trials and tribulations and struggles of working in Italian rice fields. So it was a worker's song first and had a different set of lyrics and then was reworked by the anti-fascist fighters uh, during that time period. If I die, partigiano Bella ciao, bella ciao, goodbye beautiful, bury me upon that mountain beneath the shadow of the flower. I had heard it years ago, but the kind of traditional version of it is very, like, up tempo and kind of um the chorus goes it's like very staccato it's like um it goes bella ciao bella ciao bella ciao 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 like and i wish that i had some great story about uh you know how i came across the version that i've kind of like adapted but the truth of the matter is tom waits did a version Mm -hmm. of the song uh mark rabot did an album and uh, most of the songs on it were collaborations with other people, and he did a track with um, Tom Waits, and it was that song. You know, as Tom Waits does, he makes it sort of sad and emotional and, like, very, like... And uh, so that's the version that really, like, I kind of, kind of adapted to my own style. Of course, all of this was almost a year ago before the pandemic had set in, before all of us had spent months in isolation, before we found new ways to deal with our livelihood and uh, interact with the world. And of course, well before George Floyd was in the news. In the time that the pandemic kind of set in, Obadiah had changed his lifestyle quite dramatically from being a bookseller here in town. Uh, He had kind of turned into this punk rock delivery gentleman where he was driving a van around listening to Crimp Shrine and uh, taking books to people's houses. 
middle of a crisis, we all need to read. But, you know, as this unfolded and, well, suddenly everything shifted to protests, the world here in Salem began to change. In the last few weeks, this has become like a very real situation where there are fascists in the streets of Salem that were really scary. <laughs> well, so we we had heard on the news, you know, just about windows getting smashed in Portland. And, you know, as business owners, you know, we just decided that we would go down to our store and that we would be there and that we would be present. And, you know, our thinking initially was, you know, if something's going to happen, we want to be there. We want to know and we want to have an opportunity to, like, maybe interact with people and, you know, defuse the situation if there's going to be one. You know, I spent a lot of time sitting out in front of the store and just playing guitar. And, you know, a lot of the time, the protests or the action, like you could hear off in the distance, the sound of like um, flashbangs or tear gas exploding or, you know, like there was definitely stuff going on. You could hear it like blocks away. Right. And, you know, and it wasn't that far away, but a lot of the time where we were at was just kind of this, mm-hmm. you know, dead zone. There's a photograph of Obadiah and Kat from the nights in question outside of the book bin. And it's a kind of haunting picture. The signs lit up. You can see the store, all with like the windows and the lights and whatnot. But there's no customers. Instead, you just see Kat and Obadiah in front. Cat's sort of leaning against one of the edges of the window, wearing a mask. And Obadiah is sitting in a chair, holding a guitar, masked. And he's just playing, just sitting there, thinking. While protesters are clashing with police a couple blocks over, they're trying to make the most of it. Trying to figure out how the night's going to turn out. There was very little, like almost nothing happened downtown around us for a long time until like around 11.30, I think. And then uh, some people who got pushed out again from the Capitol area were coming towards us and a truck or a car up by the bus mall got smashed up. I could see people smashing the windows out. Hmm. There were crowds of people like running by and some, some trash cans got thrown into the street. And um, they all seemed like they were at most college students. You right. know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a lot of them seemed like teenagers to me. A young gentleman with tattoos and a hoodie came over to Obadiah and Kat, flashing a phone saying that he had video of those who were responsible for the car getting smashed and was pointing at various kids who were running past saying, oh, they did it, they did it, they did it. But eventually this kid wandered off. Well, quite some time later, maybe like an hour later, this young uh, Hispanic kid, you know, again, seemed like a teenager, came up and uh, was talking to Cat, you know, kind of explaining why they were out protesting, you know. Mm. And I remember his his nose was broken. Oh, no. Yeah, his nose was all crooked and like, so we're standing there and, you know, he's talking to Cat and the kid from earlier who had said that he had video and hums up and he points at him and he says, he's one of the people, you know, who smashed up that car. And then right behind him were two armed white guys. The older of the two, he was this older guy with like a white beard, 
walked up and he pulled out a pair of handcuffs. Whoa. And he looks at the kid and he says, I'm arresting you. Cat heard him say that he was going to place him under citizen's arrest. All I heard was that he was going to arrest him. Right. I looked at him and I just, you know, I said, you're not a cop. You don't get to do that. Mm-hmm. The kid seemed kind of scared, which makes sense. I mean, he has an armed guy trying to tell him that he's going to handcuff him. And he, he was saying, are you really going to do this to the guy? And like, there was kind of this moment of confrontation. And my wife, Kat, who I think is incredibly brave, asked him if she, if he wanted her to stand with him. And basically just stepped between him and the guy with the gun. And when uh, my wife stepped in between him and the guy with the gun, he looked right at her and said, you are entering the line of fire. Wow. (laughs) That's a weird kind of threat to give to anyone under any circumstance. (laughs) Well, I mean, basically what he's saying is I'm prepared to shoot this unarmed Hispanic teenager. Right. And, 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 and your wife as a result. Yeah. Which is just total insanity. Yeah. I also stepped forward. And at that point, you know, there was a crowd of other people there too. Like once people were like stepping between them, there were probably like five or six folks. Mm. And when the police showed up, she interacted with them did a great job of basically just telling the police this guy threatened me. She refused to let it be about anything the kid might have done. Like as far as she was concerned, the issue was the armed guy on the street with a gun in front of her business. Yeah. And basically the police said that they couldn't do anything and told everybody to disperse. This is when the story takes a slightly national turn, as many of you may know from a little social media clip that has been getting a lot of attention. Citywide curfew shutdown so we can arrest anybody who walk around. Okay. My command wanted me to come talk to you guys and request mm-hmm. that you guys secrete either inside the police station so we're in your vehicles, somewhere where it's not a violation at all, so we, can, so we don't look like we're playing favors. Regardless of how this message was meant to be taken by anyone who heard it, it seems very clear here that the police and the militiamen that were in operation in Salem that evening were working a little bit in concert. Various businesses downtown had had armed militia people out front of, you know, Glamour Salon being the most notable, but there were a number just right around the corner from us. Right. They were not standing, just standing guard. They Mm -hmm. were actively out and about downtown. At one point... Earlier in the night, the same night that this incident I'm talking about was happening, uh, we saw a group of guys, one of whom was just carrying a pistol in his hand, not even, you know... Out in the open. (laughs) Just walk past the GovCup. Wow. So, I mean, yeah, there there were armed people all over the place. Now, this is where I have to admit something that makes me very uncomfortable. I was actually shocked a little bit by this story. And that comes from my position of privilege, unfortunately. I'm in a position where I don't encounter this kind of thing on a regular basis. So, to me, it might seem shocking. The more I've reflected on this, the more I feel like I have to preface any conversation I have about it with, 
I found myself in a very scary situation and one that was surprising to me. Mm. And I think a lot of that I have to recognize is because of privilege. There are people who don't find the chance of being confronted by, you know, armed white supremacy to be surprising. It's something that they know they have to be on the lookout for. And like, I just feel like if I'm going to talk about this stuff, like I, I do need to like acknowledge right. a certain amount of privilege on my part. That is why it feels so shocking. Like, I think there are people who, I think there are people who are not shocked by it, you know. It's hard to go through a situation like that and not come out the other side having been affected in some way. You know, for somebody who had been playing that song, who had been thinking about this idea of a metaphoric encounter with fascists, and then to have it actually play out in front of you is pretty disconcerting. But for some reason... The song is still something that Obadiah is fond of and thinks about quite a bit. I did play that song probably at least a couple of times every night that I was down there. I don't know, it's interesting because I think I kind of felt like the fascists were at my door already anyways before this. There's obviously this event that happened that is like this very obvious kind of like one-to-one correlation, you know. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure that that's the most useful way of thinking about it. I think finding yourself in a country <laughs> that, mm-hmm. and and part of like looking around and seeing this fascism, I think, requires you to look backwards and look at the ways that it's always been there. There's this thread. I mean. It's basically a political murder ballad. Yeah. If you listen to the song, the lyrics are talking about how I woke up one fine morning to find the fascists at my door. And then from that point on, the whole song is about going to their death. Like, the song isn't saying, I woke up one fine morning to find the fascists at my door. Now I'm going to go kick their ass and we're going to take our country back and everything's going to be fine. Right, right. The song is about how, like... There's a maudlin... I know I'm going to die. I know that this choice is going to mean my destruction. And, like, just make sure it means something. This is the flower of the partisan Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, bella is the flower of the partisan who died for freedom. This is the flower of the partisan who died for
the curb. Mid-Valley Mutations was produced for Sheena's Jungle Room on WFMU. Created by Austin Ridge and Mitch Headroom. Theme songs by Shadows in Blue. Visit shadowsinblue.bandcamp.com for more information. Emotional support, Marla, Oryx and Craig. Local denizens of the Mid-Valley, where the magic happens. Engineering and technical support by the Lava Lamp Lounge. Where the elite meet to make radio treats that can't be beat. More information, austinrich.org. I find television very educating. Every time somebody turns on the set, I go into the other room and read a book. Mid Valley. Be seeing you. Mutations.